0: Media. The
1: bench. On one of my last trips to Greenville this summer, I went over to Eden Brent's house. She's something of a local blues legend. I grew up watching her play at the old downtown dive bar one block east. And I mean, grew up. If you could drive yourself there, you didn't get carded. This afternoon, though, I'm seeing her because she's a friend of Richard's and believes he was unfairly targeted.
2: Hey! Hey! hey. Come on in! Thank you! No, I, it's very right. nice to meet you. I, I know, um, Hi, hey look, I, 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 I cleaned up for y'all.
1: No, it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> this is a joke. It looks like we interrupted a jam session. Instruments everywhere. Eden's husband plays the trombone, There's brass, guitars, and in a sunroom off to the side of the living room, Eden's baby grand piano. Even though I've known who she is for decades, this is the first time we've actually sat down and talked. She has long hair and she's wearing a floral skater dress and sneakers. As we get settled in, she sits in a chair with her legs folded under her. She's casual and comfortable on a mic.
2: I'm a lifelong resident of Greenville, Mississippi. And I live right down the street. Not even two blocks from Richard and his mom,
1: Charlotte. I'd reached out to Eden for two reasons. First, Richard told me I should, that she would vouch for him. But also because I'd seen her name in my aunt's journals from right after the murder. She wrote that one evening after Richard's second polygraph, the one he, quote, failed, Richard had told his mom that he was going for a walk. But then he was gone for several hours. No one could find him. When he finally reappeared that night, He said he'd been down in Eden's house.
2: I remember him being distraught. He was upset at the direction that the investigation was taking, you know. And I recall him describing to me how upsetting it was because the police will coax you into believing that they need your help. (laughs) And then, before you know it, they're accusing you of murdering your aunt. Yeah, he was, he was awfully upset about it. He just felt like he had been misled by them. He was cooperating as much as possible. And then all of a sudden, kind of they turned the tables on him. And I remember him telling me that the cops had asked... Did you have some kind of a beef with your aunt? I mean, I hate to say it, but it's almost comical to me to even think about this. It seems ridiculous. As much as he loves family and as family-oriented as he is, the cops were trying to railroad him at the time.
1: Eden sees the suspicion around Richard, much like Richard does. The police took aim at him
2: because he was an easy target. Richard has said as much to me as well. I think people want to blame somebody when bad things happen. He's not a, a kind of everyday, run-of-the-mill sort of guy. He's a he's an eccentric. Kind of a guy. He still lives with his mother. A person who would become a cop probably can't really relate to his lifestyle. He's a little bit different than a lot of the people you'd meet around here. He's got some different kind of an idea about the world. He doesn't really fit into a good mold here. So I would imagine that it, somebody conducting an investigation would say, "Hmm, this is a this guy's weird," you know. <laughs> Because that's, he's not a policeman, or he maybe he doesn't go fishing or hunting or do the stuff that people around here do. It's not just the police. As we've
1: established, Richard's differences have dogged him his whole life.
2: I think that, you know, he's tried to carry on, but it's hard when you lose part of your family and then some of the community thinks you did something awful, too. It is... Kind of ruined his life. You know, now, no matter how it ever gets resolved, he will have suffered as if he did it. It's just been, to me, yet another crime on the whole family. Look, he's not a murderer. And if he did it, he wouldn't be able to hide it all. He would have a very guilty conscience. He would have admitted it. You know, there'd be a little spatter of blood on something in his car. It just doesn't add up to me. You know, it just seems like they would have found some kind of evidence. You look for evidence and then try to find the person. You don't find the person and then look for the evidence anyway. But since it seems that they were finding the person and then looking for the evidence, couldn't they find any? From Campside
1: Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Witnessed Devil in the Ditch Episode 6. All this evidence. I'm Larison Campbell.
3: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've
4: changed, so you don't have to download the new Bumble now.
1: Eden wasn't the first person to say the police messed up the case. Regardless of what you think happened to my grandmother Presh, the one thing I keep hearing from all kinds of people around the case is that this wasn't a thorough enough investigation. But Eden was the first person who told me that she thinks Richard's life had been destroyed over this. Even Richard is reluctant to see it that way. He says no one thinks about it anymore, even though they do. And it's important to keep this in mind. In our legal system, people are presumed innocent until proven guilty. You all know that. It's Civics 101. But let's walk through it. Typically, a person becomes a criminal defendant when police and prosecutors have enough evidence, witness testimony, something physical, whatever, to charge them with a crime. But that person in the eyes of the law is still innocent, which is why a beat cop can't just arrest someone and voila, they're a criminal. The state has to prove it. But what if that case never makes it to court? Because what if the police never have enough evidence to make an arrest? That's what happened in my grandmother's case. So officially, legally, her murder is unsolved, the killer unknown. But is the mind really okay accepting the unknown? Or does it start working overtime to finish the story investigators stopped writing? In my grandmother's case, we know what the mind does. But here's the damnedest part. Because the state never tried to convict anyone, no one's had a chance to be acquitted either. Which means that outside the courtroom, ordinary people can still point fingers. They can say someone is a murderer because they don't have to prove it. They only have to believe it. It's human nature, but that doesn't make it right. Trial by rumor, Conviction by whispers and side-eye glances isn't justice. It's a cruel game. So why wasn't there ever enough to make an arrest? We keep hearing that this investigation had access to more resources than the average Greenville murder. Were those resources used? If all this evidence was collected, what happened to it? And what do we know about where the investigation stands today? Here's what I do know. The state crime lab collected evidence at Precious House and later collected items from Richard. I called up someone named Pam Miller one night. She was at Precious House the day after the murder with the state crime lab. At the time, Pam's job was going to crime scenes. She was an investigator for the district attorney's office. She knows the process for collecting evidence. She knows the kind of evidence prosecutors need to make their case
3: and she knows
1: what makes a good investigator.
3: I think they're open-minded that anything can be a piece of evidence and they're willing to take the time and be meticulous as they process and work a scene. Um, it's, it's very stressful to actually work a scene because you know when you leave that scene, you, you may have left the piece of evidence that was gonna convict the person. And it's really hard, It's a very it, it was always stressful to me. I never wanted to release it.
1: Meaning she wanted to wait as long as possible before taking down the police tape to allow the public or family back into the crime scene, or in this case, Precious House.
3: Can we just hold it? Can I take a break and let's come back? Because you just don't know. And you're hoping in the meantime, something's gonna come in. The people doing the footwork outside of the scene are gonna develop something that's gonna help you on the inside while you're still working it, that's gonna say, oh, this is what happened. So now I really know, and I can follow those sequence of events, but it doesn't, I mean, most of the time that doesn't happen. By the time police
1: released Precious House back to our family, investigators had collected a lot of evidence. They'd pulled fingerprints. They'd sent off items like Precious emptied purse. They'd bagged potential murder weapons, like the small hammer and that brass candlestick. They'd rolled up the rugs from her sunroom and sent them off along with her clothes and that bloody dish towel that somebody placed over her face. Greenville police have their own in-house lab, but it was pretty limited in the types of evidence they could process.
3: Prints, dried blood. The state crime lab, however, could do it all. They're very thorough. I really felt like the evidence collected at the scene was going to lead to something.
1: I can understand why she'd feel that way. I've seen the evidence logs from both the police and the state crime lab. Well over a hundred pages, some with multiple items. Along with the interviews we've done with investigators, they help create a timeline of the investigation. That's how I know the small hammer was collected from Precious Kitchen drawer that first night and immediately sent away to be tested for blood and prints. And how we know that on June 23rd, it came back clean. The likely murder weapon, the candlestick, was collected four days after the murder. The crime lab found a trace amount of blood on it, but it wasn't enough to test without destroying the sample. Then, more than two years after the murder, the state crime lab in Biloxi sent Greenville police two reports. They listed items of evidence, like photos and precious clothing, and the report said these items were destroyed during Hurricane Katrina before ever being tested. Pam didn't know this. Do you know why the evidence would have hung out in
3: Biloxi for two years? Nope. I have no idea why it was there that long unless, well, the crime lab was constantly, had a backlog. Um, I just don't think that we had the resources in the state, or, or they weren't allocated, to pay analysts what they needed to make to be here. Mississippi
1: State Crime Lab has been plagued by understaffing for decades. When I toured its storage room a few years back, I remember aisles and aisles of evidence just sitting there in bags and trays. I asked the Greenville police detective, Ricky Spratlin, about this.
0: It usually takes a while. I mean, sometimes I forgot I sent something down there.
1: Spratlin thinks sometimes police overload the labs with unnecessary requests.
0: They just send it to the crime lab. Send it to the crime lab. They get them all jacked up down there because they got all this stuff.
1: Investigators also collected items from Richard. They took some of his clothing to examine for blood. And they took three pairs of his shoes to compare to the partial shoe prints found at the scene. The one outside in the garden and the one in the kitchen. They didn't get a match. The lab determined that the partial shoe prints were too partial to even compare. But the shoes were potentially useful for another reason.
0: The person walked through the blood splatters. Whoever hit her, I had to have splatters back on them, too.
1: From the documentation I have, the lab tested at least two of the three pairs of shoes for blood. They came back negative. But police took some time to collect Richard's shoes. They took his Fila high tops the week after the murder, and they waited another two weeks to collect his Reeboks and Converse. When I bring this up to Pam...
3: If they collected the first pair of shoes and he knew that there was something to compare shoes to, he did not keep that pair of shoes.
1: This, of course, was bad for the investigation, but it also did damage to Richard. Let's say Richard's items had been collected in one fell swoop at the time of his first interview, right after the murder, and everything had come back clean. Well, that would have been a problem for the theory that Richard killed Presh. But because that didn't happen, because he wasn't immediately excluded, he's been treated by some investigators and most of his family like he has to prove his innocence the exact opposite of how the actual system works. Pam sounds almost apologetic, Richard was put in this situation.
3: I have a lot of unanswered questions myself. I felt like it was solvable, but I was never 100%. It was the person everybody thought it was. Never was. I have not been 100% yet, so I'm, I'm sure I'm not the favorite of the families. I just can't ever go all in until until I'm convinced, and I was never convinced. I can't go
1: all in either. Pam had lots of meetings with my one aunt who had collected binders of notes and evidence on the case. Um,
3: If I was on trial, I, I wouldn't want circumstantial evidence that was convicted me, and it happens all the time. Sadly, I've seen it. I know in her mind, she's thinking, it happens all the time. Let's arrest him, let's move forward. Obviously, it wasn't even enough for the district attorney to say we have enough to present. We don't even have enough to do anything with. And sometimes that's all you ever have.
4: The days are getting longer, the weather's getting warmer, and the last thing I want to do is stand over a hot stove. But I still want to eat well. And that's where Factor comes in. Factor's chef-crafted meals are ready in two minutes. That's right, two minutes. Two minutes. No shopping, no prepping, no cooking, no cleaning up, which means more time to get outside and live your life. Every week, you'll have 35 restaurant-quality meals to choose from, plus more than 60 add-ons to get you from breakfast through dinner. You've got wellness goals? Terrific. Factor's got you covered with options like calorie smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and Vegetarian. Or maybe you just want to eat a healthy diet. Factor meals are made with premium ingredients, they're dietitian approved and again, they're ready in two minutes. That's all the nutrition and none of the hassle. Try it for yourself. Head to factormeals.com slash witness50 and use code witness50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code witness50 at factormeals.com slash witness50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Welcome to True Spies.
1: By early 2004, so about six or seven months after the murder, my dad and his sisters had lost confidence in the Greenville police investigation. Here's my Aunt Martha. It looked to me like they had, here's what you do if you have a murder investigation. Now you go do this piece, you go do this piece, you do this piece, y'all go out and talk to whoever's here in the family. But there did not seem to be any collaborative look of even what you might visually imagine as a bulletin board putting up sticky notes of, okay, what have we got so far? What we've got so far are sticky notes on on people's individual notepads, and nobody's— that's the feeling I got. Uh, Nobody was putting it together. That, to me, was, was a huge problem. So they decided they weren't going to wait on police. They'd solve this themselves. My dad's other sister began to put together those binders and type up timelines. My dad interviewed anyone he thought might be a witness.
5: I just wanted to try to pull together as much so-called evidence as we could while memories were fresh, and I I did do a lot. I spent a whale of a lot of time, including interviews that um, I didn't record but would dictate notes of afterwards.
1: They do this for the better part of a year. And then they decided they needed to hand it over to someone who would actually know what to do with it. So they hired a private investigator, Ken Winter. He came highly recommended. He had a three-decade career in law enforcement, including running investigations for Greenville Police in the 1980s, and extensive experience in crime scene analysis, especially fingerprints. I mean, so many people I spoke to in law enforcement for this story raved about him.
3: He was my uh, latent fingerprint and major crime scene. He trained me in those. He was really, he was a great, great asset to the department.
0: Whatever Ken Winter says, I'll go with it. That's the way I feel about him. (laughs) Whatever he says, I'll go with it.
1: Ken, the P.I., was already familiar with the case before he got the gig because he had just retired from his position as head of the Mississippi State Crime Lab. Here's Ken.
5: They wanted our crime scene unit to um, uh, come and assist uh, the Greenville Police Department. And of course, you know, when uh, when they said who it was, uh, I mean, I, I you know, automatically knew who they were talking about. The investigation started out a little, a little bit unorthodox because you had those, all those different entities working on it and kind of going in their own direction but later on and and that's how i ended up involved in it
1: did that help or hurt the investigation
5: well it it hurted in the beginning because normally in any death investigation you know within the first 48 to 72 hours is critical as far as um gathering information and, and getting a direction to go in when you've got uh, you've got uh, it, it, people going in, in three or four different directions uh, and really not collaborating with each other, uh, that, that caused a little bit of confusion uh, because they were all doing their own thing.
1: I ran this by the original investigator on the case, former detective Ricky Spratlin. Remember, he was with the Greenville Police Department, the lead agency on Precious Case.
0: No, the more the merrier. just if you find out something, let me know.
1: But Sheriff's Detective Kelvin McKenzie said it didn't always feel that way. The Sheriff's Department was there as the secondary agency to assist the police department.
5: Sheriff's Department should chief law enforcement. I never wanted to take over their cases. We always wanted to help them, you know, help them and, and them help. We always wanted to work together. As the years went by... Mm, that didn't work out so well. Everybody was was scared somebody else was stepping on their toes or whatever.
1: Ken, the private investigator, would be the remedy to this. He was hired to pull all these threads into one cohesive investigation. He knew the sheriff's department. He'd worked for the Greenville police. Hell, he'd run the state crime lab. If anyone could get a bird's eye view of the whole operation, it's Ken.
5: What you ended up having uh, was basically... Uh, three different investigative files. The Greenville Police Department had theirs. The Sheriff's Department had theirs, and then uh, MBI had theirs. Sometimes uh, police, you know, they they formulate a theory in their mind, and then they try to they try to make the crime fit their theory, and that's just the opposite of what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to follow the evidence. The Gravel Police Department investigators, they decided that it had to be, you know, just one of these random young black men that she had uh, got uh, to come do some work in her yard and then come back later to rob her. And, you know, it escalated into um, violence. As a result of it, uh, they had several different names in their file. I had to spend a lot of time following up. And and they were all just dead end.
1: I do know, because as you heard a couple episodes ago, that's exactly what I found when I tried to look into that angle. A lot of names and no connections to the crime scene. What's interesting is Eden, Richard's musician friend, just told us she wondered if some investigators targeted Richard, then tried to find evidence against him. Ken is saying something different. But the problem is, Greenville police decided it was an anonymous black man and wasted time trying to find evidence to fit that theory.
5: It was real simple MOs. And and, and I think that that, you know,
1: that that was easy. Which Ken says was, quote, fantastic for Richard.
5: And, you know, if he's ever charged, then that's going to be his defense. There's no doubt about it. I didn't do it. Some Some random black guy did it.
1: Richard, of course, has never been charged. But that is his explanation, verbatim.
5: Mainly what I knew about was the forensic investigation, the crime scene part of it. The shoe prints, the blood spatter, the fingerprints. The drawer, where the the tile came from that was over her face, in the kitchen.
1: One of the biggest areas of interest for investigators, for everyone really, has been the dish towel placed over Precious' face since the person who covered her face is likely the same person who killed her. My aunt's files contain copies of memos that police detective Ricky Spratlin wrote in the early weeks of the investigation. According to the memos, three days after Presh's murder, Spratlin goes back to the crime scene to dust for prints himself. He focuses on two areas of the kitchen. The first is the kitchen drawer where Presh kept her tools, like that small hammer. The second is the drawer where Presh kept her dish towels. Spratlin writes in his memo that he's able to pull prints from both drawers. Two months later, police send those prints and others collected to the crime lab. The lab runs them through APHIS, the National Fingerprint Database. No matches. Though an APHIS search is limited just to people already in the database, That means people who've had their fingerprints taken by the police or some other government agency. Then, Ken comes on board one year later, and he gets the police files. He tells me he's surprised to discover that police stopped at the fingerprint analysis with the APHIS database. That's a huge screw-up, Ken says, because Greenville police detectives should have also asked the lab to compare the prints they found at the scene— to all the prints of people police might be looking into, because those people might not be in the database. But Ken says that in Precious' case, Spratlin did not ask the lab to do this.
5: He put them in a packet and put them them in in their file. Nobody knew anything about them Um, for, you know, basically for a year. That's when I found the fingerprint packet and, Obviously looking at them I knew that there there were prints of a value and and the location of those prints uh, obviously very incriminating.
1: Spratland denies he would have done that. Stuck the prints back in the file without a thorough analysis. But according to the evidence documents I have nothing shows the prints were compared to people police interviewed until a full year after the murder when Ken came on board which does line up with what Ken says. Of course, the information I have may not be complete. It's the kind of thing I'd love to check against whatever's in Prussia's file. But Greenville police have refused to answer a single question about this case. Ken says when he gets the file a year after the murder, he does his own side-by-side comparison with seven people police interviewed, including Richard and Charlotte. By the way, the lab wrote that Charlotte's prints were unusable, which means they were never compared against any found at the crime scene. Anyway, Ken compares the prints and gets just one match, Richard. According to Ken, Richard's prints were on both the tool drawer where the hammer was found and they were on the dish towel drawer. Remember, Ken trained in fingerprint analysis. He tells me it's kind of his thing. Ken then asked the crime lab to do a comparison too And they also get one match, Richard. But according to the evidence sheet I have, Richard's prints were only found on one drawer, the kitchen drawer with the hammer, the tool drawer. The evidence sheet doesn't mention even receiving prints from the other drawer, the one with the dish towels. By the way, I asked Richard about this. He said he isn't surprised his prints were on the tool drawer. He'd been by to fix Precious TV several weeks before the murder. Of course, there's plenty of debate in my family about whether Richard was at Precious house all the time, much less helping her fix things. But even if he weren't, again, there's nothing in the tool hammer drawer that connects to Precious murder. When we tell Ken about the prints that were found on the tool drawer, he says, sure, maybe they were there. But even so, he's adamant that Richard's prints were also on the drawer where the dishcloths were kept, the towel drawer, the one that could have been linked to her murder. I asked Ken if he could have gotten confused. Maybe it's the prints from the tool drawer he remembered? Tool drawer and towel drawer do sound an awful lot alike. But Ken says no. Richard's prints matched ones from the dish towel drawer. He's sure of it. He told me that if we got Precious Police file, the information linking Richard to the towel drawer should be in there. But of course, the police won't give us the file the prints of richards that are allegedly on the dish towel drawer are the big reason ken
5: suspects richard the positioning of them and uh, the fact that it came from that from that you know drawer where the dish towel came out of it i mean i'm i'm convinced he did it now can we prove it you know who knows i mean he's never going to admit it
1: but if it were reasonable for richard's prints to be on the tool drawer wouldn't it also be reasonable to find one on the towel drawer?
0: He basically had a right to be in that house, you know? Sure he opened up the drawers before, you know? A print'll stay on something for a long time unless it's scrubbed off.
1: It was his aunt's house, the aunt he lived two blocks away from. When I asked Richard, he says he'd actually plunged precious sink in the months before her death, and probably would have grabbed a dish towel to dry his hands. I asked Ken if anyone else could corroborate the existence of these prints, but he said he kept a tight lid on that information. He did not want to risk Richard finding out.
5: I knew that if if we didn't approach it the right way, that he could basically give some kind of bullshit excuse. To be honest with you, uh, that would uh, discount the value of those prints as far as where they were, unless somebody has told him. Since then, he still don't know it.
1: He does know it now, as I mentioned above. I wanted to be sure Richard had a chance to respond to any allegations against him. But Ken told me the fingerprint isn't the only reason he strongly suspects Richard killed Prush. Richard, Ken says, had access and a reason.
5: You look for somebody who has, obviously, motive. You look for somebody that has opportunity. And you look for somebody that has the means.
1: So we're back to my family's theory, that Richard and Presh were angry with each other, that Richard had time to go to Presh's house, and that Presh would have let him in. Ken told me that at the end of his investigation, he turned everything he found, including the towel drawer prints, over to the district attorney's office. And he expected the case to move forward, but it didn't. I come to Ken with some skepticism, Regardless of his experience, he's not looking at this murder as a police detective or the head of the crime lab. Here, he's a private investigator hired by my family, a private citizen. In my aunt's journal, she details all of her conversations with Ken. And in the early ones, Ken did tell her he wasn't all that sure Richard did this. That fingerprint, he told me, changed his mind. But is this enough to be certain someone committed murder? Ken is supposed to be the guy to solve this, the best in the business. My family listened to him.
5: I told your family. he did this. I told the DA. I believe that as much as any, any, any case that I've ever worked.
1: The story of this investigation is a story of bits of information, pieced together by different people. One of those bits of information comes from Charlotte's phone records, which police subpoenaed not long after Prush's murder. It's an interesting timeline of that day, of what time Charlotte was in the house and who she talked to, and it's what my dad used as a guide for who he interviewed. One of those people was Ann Dana. At the time, she was staying with BJ. BJ was the hairstylist Prush and Charlotte had plans to visit the day that Presh died. Now Charlotte, remember, has always said that she and Presh planned their visit for 4 p.m. But Anne told my dad that they had actually been expecting Charlotte and Presh earlier in the day, like one o'clock. Anne will later sign a sworn affidavit saying all of this. Of course, Anne could be mistaken. But my dad also interviewed other friends Charlotte called who confirmed she was looking for Presh earlier that afternoon. So what would be the reason for changing the timeline? I don't know. But what's most frustrating about all of this is that it seems like something the police would at least want to look into. But when my dad spoke to Ann and BJ a full year after the murder, they told him they'd never even heard from the police. And the police never questioned Charlotte about this discrepancy, according to the transcripts of three interviews with her. Another disappointing thing. Another reason people aren't confident in this investigation. On my last trip to Greenville that summer, after I spoke to Eaton, the blues musician, I visited Charlotte at the hospital. She was in the ICU recovering from surgery to repair her broken hip after her 4th of July fall. I wasn't surprised to find her asleep. Surgery the day before had gone well, I'd heard, but it was still surgery on a 101-year-old. And it was late by the time I got to her, almost nine o'clock. The hospital room was private but small enough space for a chair in her hospital bed with all the wires and tubes and machines. She wasn't on a ventilator at this point, just an oxygen tube to her nose. And I could hear the pump's mechanical buzz. Otherwise, it was quiet. A minute later, Charlotte opened her eyes. She recognized me right away, but she was in a lot of pain. I tried to joke with her while we waited on her nurse to adjust her meds. I went through a goodie bag of things the hospital had put together for her. I pulled out tissues, mouthwash, shampoo. Want to see what else you have? Let's see. We have a comb for your hair. Oh, <laughs>
3: don't be going.
1: Yet. It's gonna be this. Do you know what happened? How did how did you wind up here? Well, I got up on my chair to go to the
5: bathroom.
1: She said she'd woken up to use the restroom and fell before she could reach her walker.
4: Mm-hmm. I had the walker. I
1: just missed the walker. That was four
5: o'clock in the morning.
1: At four in the morning, she says she missed her walker and fell.
5: And I was on well. Oh.
1: Richard couldn't get her up by himself.
5: So I slept well all night.
1: So she slept on the floor. He could call an ambulance for you,
5: Mother they
1: She says she begged Richard to call her nurse to help, but he didn't want to disturb her. Oh, he wouldn't?
5: Well, I slept on the floor all night.
1: That sounds awful. Um, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. She's saying Richard left her to sleep on the floor all night. That sounds monstrous. You left your 101-year-old mother on the ground all night? Around 7 a.m., three hours after Charlotte's fall, Richard called a family friend asking for help getting Charlotte off the floor. So I checked in with the friend who told me a slightly different version of events. Richard did wait three hours until daylight to call for help. But when the friend arrived, Charlotte was the one who didn't want Richard to call for an ambulance. She wanted him to call her nurse. But Richard thought it was too early in the morning to wake someone up. Richard says this is true. He thought 4 a.m. was way too early to call for help and wanted to wait until six, though he actually waited until seven. Once they had Charlotte up, they did check in with the nurse. Richard told me that she's the one who finally called the ambulance. Still, this seems to be a pattern for Charlotte. When I first saw her, she complained to me that Richard had only popped his head into the room that day and wouldn't stay long. She says she wished he'd sit with her more.
5: But he can't do it. He can't? I think mean, it's too upsetting, I don't know what it
1: is. Yeah. But the nurse told me he'd been in and out all day. So, what is Charlotte doing here? Why didn't she tell me that she's the one who said not to call an ambulance? Did she forget? Does she think she'll get more sympathy if Richard looks worse? And why did Richard make Charlotte wait three hours before he would call someone for help? I don't know, but this is part of their dynamic nobody can really understand. It works on me. I feel a lot of compassion for Charlotte in this moment. Charlotte's accident wasn't the only thing on her mind during our visit. It's clear she had an agenda for our conversation, something I've come to refer to as Charlotte's greatest hits. These are the points she's made to me again and again since our interview back in March. Point one. Is that we come from a fine Greenville family.
5: My grandfather, your mother's grandmother, grandmother's grandfather.
1: Point two is about my Uncle Claude, my Aunt Anne's husband. Over the last 20 years, Charlotte has become convinced that Claude's the one who turned the family against Richard and her that he is the main reason people think Richard killed He He's a
5: about all that mess.
1: Something about Charlotte forgetting to invite his daughter to be in the debutante ball and him holding a grudge? I ran this by my uncle. He was surprised to hear Charlotte's take, especially since his daughter was in the debutante ball that year. But what Charlotte tells me is that Claude is not allowed to darken the door of her funeral He's not invited. Well, let's hope we don't have to make that decision for a while. The third point comes from this one that Richard did not kill Presh, that they had a loving relationship.
5: I had a beautiful relationship.
1: That he was with Charlotte the whole day Presh died. There's a bigger point here, of course, that Charlotte is making with her greatest hits, and it's about our family. A reminder that we all descended from the same fine people and are therefore fine people ourselves. That this fine family was always close, especially Richard and Presh. And that when there was a rift, it was caused by someone who married into our family, my uncle. Worth noting that for Charlotte, the solution to the rift is not to forgive or at least move on as she so desperately wants everyone who suspects Richard to do but to simply redraw the lines that were drawn after Prussia's death. Her family on one side, everyone else on the other. Eventually, Charlotte's pain medicines kick in, so I decide to let her sleep. As I go, I feel torn, as I lately do when I spend time with her. On the one hand, I can't agree with anything she's just said. On the other hand, she is the closest thing I have to a living grandparent. And I love her. I want to. I want to let you get some rest. But it. it's been absolutely wonderful visiting with you, and I'll be back tomorrow. Okay. I'm Feel better. Right. Oh, it's so good getting to see you.
6: <laughs>
1: Long before I started working on this story, back when this podcast was just an idea I debated with friends, I knew what I wanted to call it: "Devil in the Ditch." for the game I played as a kid, but also for the feeling that it represented. The same feeling that I had right now, that question of what if one of the safest parts of my life would turn out to be the most dangerous? So I was surprised when I visited with Richard and Charlotte in March, and this game was the first thing out of Richard's mouth. I've never told them the title, And I was surprised again, as I said goodbye to Charlotte for what would turn out to be the last time, that these were the last words she ever said to me. Devil in the ditch. (laughs) Devil in the ditch. Next time on Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch. You describe your sort of research and your efforts Mm -hmm. Um, as an obsession. Mm
3: -hmm. I went through the garbage at their house and uh, I wanted to sample one thing of his handwriting.
5: When a psychic got involved, uh, I think that caused me uh, to lose even more enthusiasm.
1: A family tries to know the unknowable.
5: I began personally to question whether Proving they
0: did it was the same thing as finding the truth.
1: Unlock all episodes of Witnessed Devil in the Ditch ad free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of this show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts, all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes, all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the witnessed Devil in the Ditch show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit getthebinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Witnessed is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Devil in the Ditch was reported and hosted by me, Larison Campbell. Lindsay Kilbride is the senior producer, and Shiba Joseph is the associate producer. The story editor is Sean Flynn. Studio recording by Ewen Lai and Shiba Joseph. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Additional music by APM and Blue Dot Sessions. Additional field recording by Johnny Kaufman and Ambriel Crutchfeld. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Emily Martinez and our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, Ashley Warren, and Sabina Mara. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scherr.